Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. John Killick is a notorious bank robber and prison escapee. It is well documented that John once escaped from the Silverwater MRRC Correctional Centre by way of helicopter, which his Russian librarian girlfriend hijacked and flew into the prison to help him escape. John Killick, welcome to The Sticker. Well, thank you, Russell. It's uh, a pleasure to be here and uh, it's good to see you again. John, how do you feel when someone describes you as notorious bank robber, an escapee. I, I don't like it, but you're stuck with that. I wish they'd say X. W- Wikipedia has actually got me down there as author and X bank <laughs> So, <laughs> so you'd, yeah. you'd be much preferred to be known as author to... Uh, oh, d- definitely, but uh, let's face it, um, I probably wouldn't be an author if I hadn't have had that background, And uh, which... Can I just mention the book that I've done with you, the last yeah, book, sure. uh, The Voice Survivor, uh, it's going really well. Everybody asks about it. And everybody's read it. They love it. They love the book, uh, Your Life Story. They, they think it's really, really uh, something special. Yeah. And, and I, I do too. And uh, I, knew, I knew before I wrote it. It's well documented, the, you know, the helicopter escape. And I think we touch on that. We have a bit of a talk. But uh, what I'd really like to touch on today is what made you, John Killick, the bank robber and prison escapee? I think that's a great question. People... With my background and things that I've done, tend, tend to look back and say, oh, I had a, a pretty poor upbringing. That's why. But what was your upbringing like? What, what I am saying that I don't blame the background and environment. I think we make our own choices, and I had a lot of chance in life, and, and I stuffed up by my own decisions. Mm. What was the home life like for you, John? Well, I was born in the middle of uh, World War Two, and I was adopted out. I, I never met my real parents. I used to wonder, I had a brother who uh, he was three years younger, he was also adopted. And he had uh, curly blonde hair and I had uh, black hair. You right, I remember hair. I've seen photos of you, yeah. John. Over, as a young bloke, you remind me of a young Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> a lot of people said that, yeah. But the, the thing is, you could tell that you know, we weren't brothers. It, it was obvious. And uh, Did you grow up resenting that? Well, I didn't know at first, uh, but my father used to get drunk. And I, I found out, because my mother, mother told me, I always thought they were my real parents. He, uh, he, he he resented the fact that uh, he used to call me mum's kid. Um, he he favoured David and uh, that's your younger brother. Younger brother, yeah. And uh, he, he uh, so one day he just called me a black bastard and said uh, you were adopted and nobody wanted you. Uh, you couldn't walk properly. Shit like that hurts kids, you know. Mm. And, uh, and I and I wondered then who the hell I was. Anyway, he he used to throw it out. Dad used to get drunk. He was violent. Ex-boxer. He, he was um, Balmain. Uh, world away champion that doesn't seem much just a suburb but in those days Balmain tough was, suburb it, it, it was like Sydney Russell and mm. uh, it's virtually if you were champion of Balmain you were champion of Sydney and uh, uh, he, he used to get in a lot of fights when he was drunk pick fights he used to terrorise us I, I remember hiding in the middle of the house at uh, you know in the middle of winter and uh, 
walking the streets at three a.m. in the morning rather than going home. I'm scared to go home, and uh, mm-hmm. so I missed a lot of school. Um, wasn't good at school. Plus, I had every sickness every kid could get. We all get it, but I, I had the lot. You know, from asthma, I had asthma. I thought I was going to die a few times. I used to claw at the window. I couldn't breathe. Mm. And uh, yeah, I was lucky to get through that. Used to do a lot of reading. And it was during those times that I read a lot of the classics and read a lot of books. And I, that held me in good stead because I wasn't any good at school. But um, I left school, uh, you know, at 15 uh, without any qualifications. Yep. And uh, found it hard to get a, a decent job. But, but let's just backtrack. Let's just backtrack here. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the what was going on at home. What was going on between mum and dad? Well, for a start, they didn't sleep together. So I used to be embarrassed in like bringing people home. You know, one guy said to me, you know, how come you got four beds? You know, and uh, I was embarrassed by it. Hmm. Did you see your father ever being violent towards your mother? Oh, I seen him slap her a few times. Um, but she came at him with a knife once. Mm. He backhanded her, but um, he threatened her. He put his fist through uh, doors. I, I mean, it, the guy was ferocious. It was the threat, the violence emanated across to us. You, you, you couldn't live in a house like that um, mm. without being affected. I remember lying in bed at night, Friday nights, thinking, hey, he's late. I hope he doesn't get home. I hope he's been arrested for drunk. You shouldn't be thinking that about your father. We lived like that. I was still a pretty good kid. Got a job at Coles, uh, had a girlfriend. But then my mother just took her own life when I was 17, and, mm. uh, and that, that, that was the end of it. When she took her, her, her own life, was there ongoing domestic violence going on at home? What, what, what do you think made her take her own life? If she'd had enough, um, we should have seen it come, and uh, a good friend of mine, a Russian guy, she said, John, your mother's sick. I, I just didn't see it. Uh, I had a girlfriend, and uh, she was always good with me, and... Uh, but she was very depressed, so I didn't pick up on it. In those days, you didn't... You didn't something you didn't talk about. Uh, you didn't talk about it, Russell. There was no, no talk of... No, uh, there was no treatment for it. There's nowhere women could go. Uh, it's different now. It was just a shock. I, I just didn't expect it. So that same day, I left home. He, father couldn't believe it. I just said, no, because I blamed him for what happened. And what was that? When did you blame him for what happened? Was there a confrontation? No, or- no, he was too upset about what happened. The cops had come and... Uh, I heard him talking to him, and uh, they looked at sleeping tablet. He he said she had a heart attack, but I knew what she'd done. And I just said, I'm leaving, and uh, he said, you can't leave. I said, I'm leaving. At that stage, seven, I was ready to fight him. What was going on there, John? Tell me, were you hurt? What's going on with you? Well, I I blamed him for what happened. I just sort of had a chip on my shoulder, and it's sort of me against the world, because I didn't really have anybody. um, so she had all these doubts, my mother, you know, about mm-hmm. things. She didn't have a lot of support, didn't have a lot of friends, and I, I just didn't see it. So I was blaming myself a bit. 17 years old, you, you're full of that, you know? Yeah, and no, no experience in the world, mm-hmm. um, knew nothing. So I booked into a, a cheap boarding house at, uh, at Burwood, uh, and they put me with this big guy, a wrestler, who's going to Queensland soon for the wrestling championship. And he's put, put the hard word on me, he's... Uh, Told the sexual assault, you know, is that what Yeah, yeah, mm. re- re- came on pretty strong. You know, and I screamed blue murder, he stopped it and apologised uh, and never tried it again, but I, I resented that too and uh, that that really was a straw to break the camel's back, really. Because mm. uh, I was still grieving mm. and you just don't expect stuff like that. Mm. At that stage, um, it was just outrageous because I was depressed. And yeah, he, yeah. he knew I was depressed. I, I told him what had happened. Anyway, you when he went to, he, he was ripping off the system, welfare system. He, he had five different bank books. Is this the wrestler? Is that the wrestler? Yeah, the wrestler. Yeah. What I did, I stole one of his bank books before he left. 
Is this the first criminal offence you, you committed? Yeah, I'd never done anything in my life. Mm. What made you think you could get away with it? I thought that um, he'd know I did it later. He'd probably realise, but I thought... I don't think he'll go to the police because he knows I'll probably tell him what he did to me. You know? Yeah. So that, that that was the way I thought. Yeah. So I just practiced a signature in this in this other place where I was in a room, and just for all the withdrawal <laughs> in the bloody garbage bin there, wastebasket, and went down and uh, got away with it. First bank robbery, really. Yeah. Got got away with it, and uh, uh, later on the police came and it turned the landlady who cleaned the room. Uh, she saw all the slips checked him out and just rang the cops. Knew there was yep. something going on. Okay. And, uh, so I went out to Albion Street. Uh, I was there for... Um, Albion Street, as in the boys' home, Albion Street? Yeah. It's, it's notorious now. I didn't know anything about yeah. it. Look, through the work of the voice, I do it, the voice of a survivor. We've had a lot of survivors, a lot of clients from Albion Street. Back in the day, that you would have been there. So it was prolific sexual and uh, physical abuse took place in it. I was only there a night and uh, they got a strip off uh, to have a shower. It was um, five at a time. And the guys were standing there watching us, and I didn't like that much. A younger kid told me, he said, uh, you got to be careful. He said, a lot of younger kids get stood over and, and, and raped. I, I, I couldn't believe what he, what he told me. Mm. It's a scary place when you when that, the, the awareness comes of that. Same thing happened to me when I was at Derek Boy's home. It's absolutely... Um, Horrifying. I, I was lucky if I just... I, I think where I was lucky is that um, I was only there to one night, mm. and uh, plus I was a fairly big kid, um, being seven, there were a lot of kids there, small, a lot smaller than yeah. me. It was in a dormitory that night. Uh, it was cold. It was in the middle of June. I, uh, I remember I was crying and that for my mother. So you were mourning, mate, were you? Yeah, for sure. Do you think you got to mourn properly? Never, never, never had that chance. I wouldn't tell the police Dad's address. Mm. I didn't want Dad to know about it. Mm. So I walked out him. I blamed him for what happened. I wasn't going to ask him for help, but. They must have found out because uh, the next morning he's come with my brother and, and bailed me out. Mm. So he bailed me out, went home, clashed immediately, um, even though he was trying. At this stage he was trying, mm. you know, but it was too late. And you had a resentment towards your father because of Definitely, very much so. Just packed up within a week and left there and uh, got mixed up with kids uh, a bit older than me. And I, I just had a chip on my shoulder. Um, it hurt me to leave my brother with Dad, but... It was the best thing. If I'd have taken David, he would have. Um, I couldn't have looked after him, and he, he would have gotten into trouble too. So, was it the beginning of your life of crime? Would it be fair to say? It was definitely uh, because the attitude was it's me against the world now. So, with that sort of attitude, I was prepared to do anything. I, I just didn't care. I really didn't care what happened to me from this day. I didn't have any plans, any ambitions. Um, I didn't have any uh, training for any specific good job. So I got mixed up with these guys. We'd doing shoplifting and stuff like that. Mm. Eventually, we uh, we got caught. But before we did get caught on that, I went to Melbourne. I remember I went to Melbourne. I had busted appendix. Uh, they burst. And I nearly died. I was with a girl, and uh, she she left in the morning and said, I'll come back and get a doctor for him. And I, I was in so much pain that I, I called a taxi and went to St. Vincent's, and uh, and uh, they told me to wait at the end of the line. These nuns used to be run by nuns and the nurses. And, uh, Pretty brutal in the day, yeah, the old nuns were. Yeah, and, and I brutal screamed brutal. at them. I said, I think I'm dying. And uh, so they got the doctor and uh, they said, look, uh, your, your appendix should burst. It probably burst overnight. There's poison in my system. But the, I was seven. This, this is why I'm pointing this out because what happened in those days, it shows what the rules are like. You couldn't have an operation without the consent of your parents, one of your parents. 
we didn't even have the phone on. So mm. I told them where Dad lived, and uh, so they had to go and try and find Dad. Mm. They had all the kids from tennis trying to find him, and they found him in a pub. They gave him police escort there. Well, by then, I was nearly dead. I remember giving me a needle, and, and uh, I saw Mum. It was all dark, and I, I saw her reaching out for me. I reckon that's how close I was. If mm. I'd have grabbed her hand, I reckon I was gone. They said I nearly died. I, I woke up two days later and had a drip on me, and uh, I was six weeks in the hospital. So, wow. so when I got out of there, I uh, I went to Melbourne, met a girl down there. Uh, we got on pretty well, but I was running out of money. You've done all right in your life with the women, haven't you? Like you've been a bit. Would it be fair to say that you're a, a ladies' man no. from a young age? <laughs> no, no. Been a bit of a heartbreaker along the way. Oh, both both ways. I think a few of my broken my hearts too. But uh, I came back, and it was New Year's Eve on a train. Came back from Melbourne, and I was invited to a party by actually two girls again. I met them on a train. This is actually true. They invited me to this party at Strathville. I got to Strathville, and I was going to go. I had the address, and I said, bugger it. And I jumped on a train to Fairfield, where we lived, and I ran. It was about a mile and a half, and I ran and got there just before midnight, knocked on a door, and Dad was there with my brother. I said, look, I've just come to spend a New Year's with you. And he, he hugged me, and he had tears in his eyes. And, uh, How did that make you feel? I, I know the feeling. When I got locked up at Minden Boys Home, my dad was like pretty still sort of guy. Yeah. It was yeah. the first time i ever seen any sort of emotion. Yeah. How did it make you feel? It made me feel that I was just glad that I'd done what I'd done because that's the last New Year's Eve we ever spent together, any of us, mm. and, yeah. uh, the three of us. As a young man, to see your father, especially in, in those days, to express any sort of emotion must have been a pretty amazing feeling. Well, he, he thought I was gone for good, you know, and uh, and he would have blamed himself. Yeah. It's funny enough, we finished up really good friends in the end of his life, and uh, I, did, I tried to do a lot for him. But, you know, he always, when I got into trouble later, he uh, he stuck by me too. Yeah. You know, shoplifting and a few breaking headers, not much, but got caught in one and uh, went to jail. Finished up at Long Bay in January, mm. uh, not long after that New Year's Eve. And uh, What year was that, you remember? That, yeah, it was uh, 1960. Yeah, yeah. well... Yeah, I was 17 um, when I went to Long Bay and I went with my mate. You just wouldn't believe the conditions. And the, and the legal age to go to prison was still 18, was it? Still 18. Yeah. Well, how did they justify sending you to jail early? They, they just didn't seem to care. I wasn't the only one. Uh, as, as you know, they were, they were still doing it uh, when you went to jail. This is a fact I found out later. There was a 14-year-old boy at Pentridge got shot in the back a couple mm. of years before I went to jail. Mm. Uh, Got shot in the back, climbing a wall, trying to escape. Four, can you imagine a 14-year-old boy being in Pentridge? Yeah. It turned out later he wasn't the only 14-year-old. Mm. But the conditions, Russell, you know, people, th- these young guys today talk about jail and how tough it is, but you imagine this. They put three of us in a cell. We were lucky we went over an, an older guy. It wasn't a toilet in them days. It was a shit can. There, there was a shit can in, in, in the when, corner. When we talk about a shit can, it means it's a, it's a can, uh, a, a thing that they put in the cell, that people have got to basically shit and piss in. For three of them, yeah. For three of them. And in the morning, the process is you come out, empty it out. That's right. Gets washed out and goes back to your cell at night time. There was no plumbing in the cells. No plumbing. There, there was no water. It was a jug of water. And there was um, th- three beds, just coil mats on them, uh, no sheets, just dirty old blankets. The lights off at nine o'clock. There were no books in the cell. There were no radio, no TV, uh, no phone calls. You could never make a phone call. If you wrote a letter to let people know where you were, um, you had to write it in an ink, take it down to the school, read it. And if you didn't like it, rip it up, and then they'd send it. So it might take two weeks before anyone knew where you were. Mm. So those conditions were atrocious, and there was nothing to do. And a lot of young people, 
wind and those soils we were actually sexually assaulted mm. by the other two we had nothing else to do so that was the entertainment for the night did that ever happen did anyone ever try that on you uh, well I was lucky that I was with my mate also um, the old guy warned us about all this there, mm. there was a young blonde guy who got raped in the showers um, while I was there mm. actually just got knocked out and raped you hear of um, some of these people shock jocks and that describing certain prisons as hotels and something what was your experience <laughs> Well, I'd actually heard that, that um, my mate told me, well, it would be better in a boys' homes, he's saying, and uh, I was shocked what I was saying. You're locked out in the yard all day with nothing to do, and mm. uh, the meals were absolutely atrocious. They mm. they had riots there. Mm. Uh, they called it the Great Death. You used to get stew, and mm. it's just shocking, uh, and nothing to do. But I actually played chess um, in a yard with a young guy, and I beat him, and he hit me over the head with a chess. chess so loser. <laughs> so uh-huh. we finished up punching on, and... Uh, Dad had taught me to fight, and I got over him, and uh, the screws walked away. They used to let the fights go on. Those days. Yeah. They knew no one was going to get stabbed or anything, so mm. they let it go. They said, well, that's lucky that uh, people have seen it. You'll stand up for yourself. They said, but don't get carried away. They said, because the blokes knew you could beat you one hand time behind the back. They mm. still, still handle you. Yeah. So. And that was all done by way of fighting back then, wasn't it? It was no knife fights or anything like no, that. No, that's like right. Used today. That's right. It was just um, you'd, you'd, you'd hear who the best fighters were in the system. Yeah. Let's um, John. Let's fast forward a little bit mm. and let's talk about when when was, when did you do your first bank robbery? I need to explain when, when when we first went into jail. The first thing I learned talking to hardened crims, the code of ethics. You, you had to learn the criminal code. It was totally opposite to what, to what we how we live outside. Mm. You know, and it, I mean, if you give anybody up for anything, any small, even if you got bashed or something, you give anyone up, you, they'd be called a dog, and you'd finish in protection. You had to live by that code and. It's very hard to transition when you step out from there. Mm. You, you just get taught and believe that it's okay to rob and steal if you can get away with it. And but everybody talked about the bank robberies. Um, bank robberies? I know when I first started doing jail, to be a bank robber, yeah. was, you're holding the high, highest regard. That's right. It was the highest regard. You were right up there. The bank robbers and, and... Top of the food chain. Yeah, yeah and, and safe breakers. So they, mm. they were the, the two crims that everybody looked up to. And there weren't a lot of bank robbers, some... And I should have picked up that Kevin Simmons uh, was a bank robber, robbed the bank in Rose Bay. Uh, he was now doing life through escaping, and they, they killed a prison guard uh, with Newcomb. And uh, Darcy Durgan, uh, that robbed the bank and down at Piermont, and uh, his mate Mears shot a uh, bank manager, and they sentenced them to life too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that wasn't a great recommendation to be a bank robber. And then and when I started to rob banks, about that time, Ronald Ryan and Walker got out, and they robbed the bank. And of course, Ryan was, was executed, and Walker uh, Walker got thirty six years. Mate, there's a lot. There's a lot. A lot of fear based. Thing. You don't. You don't like from my own experience. You don't know if you're going to come out of that bank and get your head blown off. Well, well, that's it. And in those days, Russell, they tellers had guns. Now, mm. I think that's what stopped a lot of people. The first bank that I robbed was at Canley Heights in uh, late January. Uh, 1966 mm. and what happened is that um, I bought a rifle you could buy a rifle in those days and uh, I remember, so, remember you, could buy, you could buy guns from I can't remember a time when you could buy shotguns from Kmart exactly right you could buy they were so yeah, accessible you could you could got this guy to help me and he went in and pretended that uh, he was a customer wanted to see the bank manager mm. to get him out because uh, I knew they had guns and I went in and my left knee was shaken that bad that the gun went, went off into the floor and wow. I had the single shot. And I pretended to reload it, pointed at him and said, give me a gun. He handed it to me handle first. 
he gave me the gun. I had an empty empty gun. As soon as mm. I got the gun, I, and it had Commonwealth Bank written on it, mm. I threw the gun on the floor, and the cops were absolutely screaming later on because um, they could have got me then, could have killed me. So I got away with that. Uh, at this stage, I was gambling. I, I learned to gamble um, with a mate of mine, and uh, I started betting on horses. And, uh, Do you reckon that was the beginning of your demise? Definitely. The gambling really topped it off because... Uh, mm. I used to bet pretty heavy, and uh, if I was losing, I'd try and try and win it all back. Mm. And, uh, Gambling was a sickness here, be fair to say. Uh, it's an addiction. Yeah. A- any addiction um, can be harmful, and uh, I think gambling is just as destructive as drugs. Tell you what, you can have a $50,000 bet, but you can't have a $50,000 shot of heroin. Exactly right. Uh, for me, um, you know, how I dealt with trauma, I dealt with trauma by numbing myself with uh, copious amounts of heroin. Do you think that's what you've done with gambling, your own trauma? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was a release. Um, you'd go in and I was on a high. I stepped on a race course, I was on a high. I always thought I was going to win. I'm, I'm an optimist. I've always mm. been an optimist and uh, always mm. think I can win. Uh, we've all got ego and I just thought I can pick horses better than anybody because mm. the first three bets I had won. You wouldn't believe mm. it. And that, that hooked you in. But the thrill of it, the adrenaline, it, it's to me, it's very comparable to like having a shot of heroin. You, you, you have that high, you go in and bang, it makes you feel good. When I stepped on a racetrack, I felt good. All my troubles were gone. I didn't think about any girls. So you used it to deal with your trauma, basically. Oh, definitely. Mm. I was in a lot of trouble. I was on a run. They, they were after me for the banks at this stage. And mm. uh, didn't go out much at day. I'd go out at night. I might go to a movie or something like that. But I was very careful what I did. I was staying in a boarding house. Would it be fair to say that... Um your gambling addiction is what funded the need to do armed robberies? Oh, definitely. There's there's no doubt about that. Because I could have robbed one bank, and if I wasn't gambling, I could have lived on that for quite a while. Tell me this. What was the average house price back then? I, I remember working it out that um, the three banks that I robbed in a period of about two, about a month and a half, I could have near bought a house. Mm. You know, did that ever cross your mind? It did later. Yeah. It did later, yeah. Benefit of hindsight. Yeah, it did. But I'd never been taught stuff like that. I'd never mm. been taught the value of property. and I, I, I was putting $800 at a time on horses. In that's 19, a lot of money. That's a lot of in money. What, what's that equate to back in today's days? In 1966, that, that's like putting about ten grand on, probably. Wow. Know? And I it's didn't a big thrill, mate. Big thrill. How did you deal with the lows of gambling, like when you, when you took a big loss? So, sometimes I felt like I remember down in Melbourne uh, I lost it I was going really well and I lost everything and uh, I lost about 3,800 down to Tavern in the mm-hmm. afternoon that, that's equivalent to going down to Tavern now and losing about 80,000 Did you get depressed when you had the big loss? Oh yeah I really seriously thought about going walking through the uh, down to the beach and just walking out in the ocean and disappearing uh, no one would ever know where I was because I was on a run anyway but, but I said no you know I'm better than that so I just robbed another bank and it was one too many this time because uh, I decided to do a bank uh, there. This guy didn't turn up to, to drive a car and I stole a uh, FJ Holden. They were pretty easy to put a bit of um, silver paper under ignition. This bank that I decided to rob at Kensington, I could see this bank manager. I knew they had guns. I said, I'm going to have trouble with these two. Um, they were arrogant. You say you're going to have trouble. What did you mean? They were um, very angry, very angry that they were being robbed. Mm. And Do you blame them? Don't blame at all. Mm. And uh, I realised these days the trauma that yeah. you're putting these people through, pointing guns mm. at them, and uh, I try and put myself in their position. I, you're putting these people through trauma, and I, I accept that. That's why we mm. got heavy sentences for these sort mm. of things. I, I knew they'd be on the phone, so I said, rip the phone out. It was on a wall. 
and he pretended to do what he wasn't doing. I said, rip the phone out. I pointed out, and I was getting angry. I said, rip the phone out, you know, and uh, and he ripped it out, and he, he was glaring. I said, this guy's coming after me for sure. So I turned around and ran out. I had a, a fair bit of money uh, and ran across the street. To, and, of course, I didn't have the getaway driver, so I ran across the street into another street, and I'd timed it the night before or a couple of nights before that if I ran across, got in the car, drove to the end of the street, it was a dead end, there was a big paddock, run through this paddock, and there was a railway station there, and I timed, I knew exactly what time the train was coming. You got away that time, did you? Well, I, no, I didn't. They came after me. I got to the car, and they fi- actually fired shots at me mm. and hit the back of the car. And I opened the, I'll never forget, it's like I'm there now. I opened the car door and went over like that with my gun, but I didn't fire at them, just pretending that they, they thought I was going to shoot them and they, they jumped behind their car. Yeah. I got in a car, and but I, I couldn't drive over. There's a truck driver to see what happened and he cut me off. And he came after me, the truck driver came after me. Uh, I was really angry. I said, what's this guy? Yeah, I'm being shot at. Why is he chasing me? He doesn't know who the bad guy is. He's chasing me. I looked behind and the tellers were running too. They were young, fit guys. They were running as well. I came to a dead end, jumped out. The truck driver pulled up behind me, and I was just angry. I jumped out, and this is where ego t- takes over. And I ran up, and he saw me coming. He wound the window up of the truck, you know. And he was shaking like that. He was shaking. And, you know, I don't blame him, I but And I just laughed and ran off. Then I saw the, the bank tellers coming, and I ran across as hard as I could across the paddock. But that... Going back to him, that ego thing, that's what all it was, cost me that extra time and, and there was this officious little guy and he saw me coming. I got within about 10 metres of him and he closed the little gate and he stood there with his arm full. I said, open the gate. The train came in. I said, I've got to get that train. He said, you've missed it, fella. You have to wait for the next one. I said, no, look, I've got to get that train. He said, can't do it, can't do it. Mm. <laughs> yes. So the train left. So then he opened it and went into his office. I jumped down on the railway track and there was this huge fence and uh, somehow I got over it. Yeah, honestly, it was three times higher than me and somehow desperation I got over this fence. We, we, we have superhuman powers when we know we're being chased. Yeah, we are, yeah. You've been, you've been here, you've done mm. it. And I've jumped down into this, um, it was a factory and they were having lunch. Mm. I looked back and I saw the, the tellers and the truck driver standing at the other end of the field staring at me. They thought I'd got the train. They told police I'd got the train. They thought I'd got away on a train. So I walked over and I heard sirens everywhere and I walked over and uh, these two guys were sitting in a car. I said, showed them the gun. I said, listen guys, I've got to get into town. I looked at them and they said, we can help you. We can do that for you. Cool as a cucumber. So drove me out through a security guard, waved to him. Sirens going everywhere and one guy, the younger guy said, uh, Geez, somebody's in trouble. I said, yeah. I said, there's always someone in trouble, isn't there? You know? <laughs> I remember when we escaped, and I escaped from um, Campsie Court, and I remember <laughs> driving past the cops in the car and waving at them and giving them the citizen wave. It was like that, and they waved back, and it was like, yes. Uh, look, oh. ba- bank robbers, escapers can be cheeky. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. You know? That's why we get a bit extra, I think. And I was, I was going to a dancer school, mm-hmm. Fred Astaire Dance School. and uh, You were a bit of a dancer, John? Well, no, I wasn't, but I, I was learning uh, because this girl it, in America, she, she loved ballroom dancing, and uh, so I was you learning. You ladies, man. No, I was learning. Well, learning. learning. Well, you learned dancing so you could impress the girl. <laughs> yeah, the tango. Yeah, yeah okay. The tango, yeah. Fair enough. It's a pretty hard Let's dance. Let's touch on that. It's a pretty hard dance. Yeah. And uh, when I stepped into the, uh, 
down in the studio, the girl who always made a fuss when I got there, she was white, and I knew straight away, you know, the alarm's going, bam, 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 you know, and it's too late, and they'd grab me. And all, all the cops, they were dressed up as dancers, they were dancing their way. Wow. And they, they, the coppers were there as part of, like, a surveillance then to, uh, to arrest you? They knew I was coming. Yeah. This guy had told them where I was coming. But I got there 10 minutes late, and another guy ran in there before me. <laughs> they jumped him, thumped him, and he's, he's crying. He was crying. And he said he's going to sue. And he was only there to do the tango. Yeah. Yeah, he couldn't twist his way out of that one. And got, uh, so. got a set of black eyes. and Well, well, they were worried. They said he's going to sue us. I said, good, good, mm. yeah. But when I got arrested... And I got arrested at the dancing school. Was that a, like a, a modern-day task force that a rescue at the dancing school? Yeah, probably. It was armed robbery squad, though. Mm. Yeah. They're normally pretty bad type cops. Yeah, they? There were two, two of them wanted to bash me badly because I wouldn't confess to any other robberies because I didn't do any other robberies. Mm. You yeah. know? At, at that stage, I was um, 24. When I first went into uh, Pentridge, I was handcuffed to a guy called Ryrie. I didn't know who he was, and they owned handcuffed us. And they, the three crims run up and Near kicked him to death, bashed him to death, and the screws let it happen. I said, well, they said, you didn't see anything. And it turned out he'd raped and murdered a, a six-year-old and a 15-year-old girl. And I, I bring it up because he got sentenced to death, and Ron Ryan also got sentenced to death. They went ahead with the execution of Ryan and didn't execute him, and there was a huge stink about it and protest all over Australia. And let's face it, you were already a, a young man that was traumatised by the death of your mother. Right. You never had the opportunity to really grieve. And um, you end up in, um, in Pentridge Prison. Yep. Firstly, how long did you were you sentenced to? When I went to court, I decided I was going to try and escape. Mm. I got caught earlier. I had some pepper. Mm. I'd had pepper given to me. and uh, I used salt. You used pepper. You, yeah, you used... Together done, we could have got a meal. We've done the same thing, yeah. And, uh, to throw in the eyes of the... Uh, to the police officers to escape and use pepper. I was uh, going to jump out of the van. I was dressed in civvies. When we get to court, uh, the judge gave me seven years. How long of that will you have to serve? Seven with a five he gave me. So you had to do five no remissions back then? Mm, yeah, and when we came out of the door, um, they, they had to take the handcuffs off. The screw said, you should have thanked the judge. You should have got a lot longer than that. And I went whack, hit him yeah. in the stomach. He went down and then I pushed the other guy off, the young, young guy. I hit the wrong guy. Then I dived towards, ran towards the, uh, there was a door. Is this your first escape yeah. attempt ever from prison? No, I, I escaped in Bathurst in 62, oh, but, but I got to the door, I opened the door, he's tackling me, you wouldn't believe it. It wasn't rugby league state, he's tackling me from the top of the steps, and we're rolling around, I nearly got, got him off, and then all the cops come, mm. drag me in, give me a hell of a bashing, and then they took me to Pentridge, mm. and... They said you were going to H Division. Now, H no, Division, I, explain what H Division Now, was. H Division, we all knew about H Division. In, in New South Wales, we had Grafton where they used to take people uh, who tried to escape or bash people. They would take them there, and as soon as they got there, they'd strip them off, bash them near, near unconscious. And then it'd get a lot of other bashings later. It, it was a horrific place, and they had royal commissions about it. H Division was the same in Victoria. It was a jail within a jail. So they took me down there. Uh, the screws that took me down there, uh, they went away. I went in there, about four of them there. Strip off, as soon as I started strip off, bang, got a cop the baton on the back of the head because I wasn't uh, looking him in the eye when he was speaking to me. They just kicked me, smashed me. Uh, I remember I bit through my lips so I didn't, wouldn't sing out. Mm. Was it an ongoing thing when you were at H Division where you were nah, continually bashed? No, nah, no, I, uh, I got this bad bashing, but it probably only lasted 
90 seconds, but it seems like it's five minutes, yeah, no. you know. Yeah. And uh, after that, they got around and threw me in a cell and they had blankets were all perfectly made, precision mm. made. They threw it all in the, in the thing. They said, you're in H Division now, everything's military here. You salute, you do this, you do that, you wear your hat. I had to go down and break rocks. I was there for about uh, four or five months, so, uh, nearly six months, had to break rocks. Uh, Ryan was there in a death cell, I could see him across from me. That He had a 24-hour guard and three different guards watching him. Yeah. Um, talking about Ronald Ryan, the last man ever hung in Australia. That's right. What happened from here, mate? We went to, there was an escape in Queensland. What happened there? I decided to escape again uh, in 1968. I got two other people with me down in H- uh, in, uh, in Pentridge. We are in E Division. I cut through some bars, uh, got a hole in the door, got out. We made some noise, got the uh, prison officer to come down. He, he saw me. He went for his gun. I hit him with an iron bar. Had to do it. And... Uh, he fell, fell back, but he didn't go down. I hit him again, and uh, then I hit him on the chin, dropped the bar and hit him on the chin. He went down, and uh, I, I grabbed his gun. It was pretty brutal, but I motivated myself. I, I think I've got to get that across, that I motivated myself by thinking about what they did to me. In the process of this, you never thought you might get shot? Yeah. Scared uh, of getting uh, shot? Was uh, it a deterrent, uh, the fact that you well, could have got no, shot? I, I really... Um, I really had that attitude. I didn't give a stuff. Yeah, didn't no, give. No, no, die. that was the attitude I took after Mum died. Mm. I don't care what happens. I'll do what I've got to do, and uh, mm. I'll take the risk. I was mm. always a risk taker. Anyway, a lot of noise made. He didn't have the keys to get out. They changed the security since Ryan and Walker, and uh, so we come unstuck. They brought in eighteen carloads of police. They surrounded us. Uh, squat team. They shot out all the lights and. And duels were eventually done with the governor loudspeaker for us to come down, stay in H Division for the uh, rest of the time we were uh, in Pendridge, which we got 18 months for that extra. And we spent, well, I spent four years down in H Division for that. Mm. Uh, did nearly seven years in Pendridge and was extradited back to Sydney for those two bank robberies that I spoke about. How old were you at this stage, John? Yeah, I was 30 and... Uh, Nearly all my 20s spending spending jail. Did it ever cross your mind just to give it away and just go straight and get a job? And It, it does, but there was no rehabilitation in jail in those times. None at all. I did some short story courses and journalism courses on my own accord, but um, I got out. I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I was angry. I was uh, had to contain the rage because uh, they extradited me to Sydney from there. Um, you're just bitter. So I walked out at... 31, I got out in 73, and uh, I walked out pretty bitter. i, I, I got to admit that. No thoughts of rehabilitation, just uh, angry. John, I, I know you well, and you're one of the most kind and compassionate people that I've ever come from. I don't know you as this violent, nasty man as you've been described in the media. Where do you think that comes from? It came partly from that uh, bashing that I got. Really, uh, it was, I'd already been bashed by the police. Then mm. I got that. And I heard him bashing other people. It's, it's run on fear. Mm. It's just a horrific place mm. where it was legal. It was legally condoned. People were suiciding and cutting their wrists and doing all these terrible things. So when was the next time you were in jail after that? And what for? Funny enough, when I, when I got out in 73, I, uh, I met Gloria and finished up getting married. Um, I had a lot of different jobs. I uh, had my own business. And I was doing pretty well, but I was gambling and I lost I lost a shop in one day. When, when you lose a shop and come home and tell your wife, I've lost a shop in one day gambling, uh, things are never the same again. I finished up getting charged for a bank robbery that I didn't do. 
Roger Rodersonville we on it was extradited to South Australia did three and a half years then one in the High Court of Australia I was acquitted by the High Court of Australia and come home but by then my marriage was over and uh, I hooked up with a young girl and we just went on a crime spree I started robbing banks all over the country uh, shoplifting taught her how to do it I got arrested uh, I was at Bogger Road I found out when I was going to hospital she came over she, she came in slipped a gun to me and uh, I got away I was handcuffed but got away and we were out for 12 months for that and when you're, when you're out like you know how what's that feeling of looking over your shoulder and knowing that you know that fear I know I know what it's like because when I escaped I even considered handing myself in at one stage because it was just the, the paranoia was just getting to me yeah, yeah it's, it does it definitely does and it was there it's the elephant in the room uh, in the relationship um, she's often got depressed about it and plus I was gambling I was robbing banks uh, gambling pretty heavy she used to say uh, to me you know you're not focused enough on me uh, look mm-hmm. what I've done for you and uh, she was right and in the end she went home because mm. it, it was very heavy and she couldn't handle it she, she went home and okay. uh, so John yeah. the escape that you're well known for is actually the escape from Silverwater let's uh, let's elaborate on, on this escape from uh, Silverwater and WRC yeah I was going pretty well that was uh, 25th of March 1999 I was going pretty well I'd been out about 8 or 9 years I met Lucy uh, the Russian lady uh, she was in an unhappy marriage she was ready to leave it and uh we uh, hooked up. We had a very strong relationship, and uh, but her husband, uh, he was very jealous. He used to bash her and stuff like that. And when she left him, he couldn't handle it. And uh, he managed to uh, had the judge on his side all the time. He used to make up stories. Or I was doing this and doing that, uh, stalking him and whatnot. He managed to get from the judge my record, and he sent it all over Australia. Wasn't supposed to, and hit, hit the jackpot in Queensland. There was a warrant for me up there. Uh, about a 20 year old that was just lying dead for not reporting on parole and uh, they came the cops and said John you're going back to Queensland and uh, so Lucy and I took off they gave us till the next morning they, they were sympathetic actually federal police they knew what had happened they knew I was going straight so we took off and uh, I had no option we lost everything we lost the car lost the house lost everything uh, you know you couldn't get unemployment so I started robbing banks again Got away with the first one. The uh, second one uh, was a disaster. Got chased by an off-duty cop. Um, fired shots over his head. There was red dye coming out of a bag. People rang up and said there was uh, who's who's. They thought it was a movie being made. They saw what was going on. Uh, he was throwing rocks at me, and uh, so I got arrested. Lucy came out to see me, and we at Sawwater we decided that uh, I would try and bust out. Pretty brazen, even you know. Look, the the thing is that. You know, I'd escaped from Queensland before, um, so she was prepared to come and try and bust me out of court or hospital or anywhere. Um, but I knew that I was going. To, I was going to court with a squad, Russell, and uh, you know what it's like. Mm. Very heavy security, and I knew that doesn't matter where I went, that if we tried something, um, they'd be ready for it and, and probably shoot shoot both us dead. So I said to her, "Look, I've had a look. I just don't think there's any way out of this place." But then when I went out training to the Oval, I used to get out twice a week. I saw all these helicopters coming over and I saw so many and you know yourself, in a jail, if a helicopter comes over, it's 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 every crim's dream to get out in a helicopter. You see a helicopter come over and the, and the guards are alert but I noticed that they weren't alert and I realised why 15, 20 helicopters coming over a day and that's because the Olympics were coming on the next year 
and sightseers were coming all the time. And I watched their attitude. They didn't even look up. And I thought, if we could somehow get a helicopter in here, I, I could get out, get out. I mentioned to her, and she said, this is a brilliant idea. And I said, yeah, but we know nothing about helicopters. You just wouldn't believe the luck. That's why I think it was fate that it happened. A guy got extradited as a con man. His name was Paul Bennett. <laughs> he had 10,000 hours experience uh, driving a helicopter. They not only put him at saltwater, they put him in my wing, and then I got him in my cell. Well, once that happened, I knew that, you know, we're going to get out of here. He was a con man. He was con of me, and we, he knew who I was, and we were talking. I told him I still had money from the bank, and he said, look, I can bust you out of here. And he gave me all the ways he was going to do it. I he had books. I read them, and I said, look, what's that, a transponder? What's that? He told me. I gave all this information to Lucy. She knew everything. She took a trial flight over. She came back and said, John, we can do it. And that's what happened. Um, I went out of the Oval the, the, the day of the helicopter. Um, she was standing, she, she was waiting near the, uh, the airport. Um, I, I rang her just before I got out, before we went out to the Oval, just to make sure we're going out of the Oval, because sometimes you don't get out, there's a lockdown or a fight or something like that. Then she knew it was on. She got on the uh, helicopter, I was out on the Oval, but what happened, they, they were late and they couldn't get the one that ordered a big one or something was wrong with it. Finished up with a small one. It was very late. I saw about 11 helicopters come over. I kid you not, there were a lot of, a lot of them come over and every, every time my heart was beating. And I took Bennett out with me just in case I thought if, if the pilot jumps out and runs off, I've got my own helicopter pilot. I didn't think they'd shoot. I knew that there was a tower, but I didn't think they'd shoot because I'd read about that they're not allowed to shoot over prisons mm. at air, aircraft. Not allowed to bash people over, but they do it. That's that's the thing. Mm. Exactly right. Sure enough, she came. She pulled the gun on him. He went for the transponder. She knew where it was. Knocked his hand away. Pulled that out. Took his head headphones off. That disabled him straight away from making contact. He said later he he saw that she uh, it was a very small pistol. He was going to knock it out of her hand. He's XSSAS, and he he had somebody tried to take him before over New Guinea, and he overpowered him. But he thought she was so cool and knew so much. And when she pulled some machine gun out and pointed at him, which he had, he just thought she's a, a Russian pro and she'll kill me. So that's what he thought. And he said it later. He he misjudged it. She was a Russian librarian. Butter wouldn't melt in the mouth, they, they said. <laughs> she's a bit of a surprise packet, Lucy. <laughs> but when she flew it, when they flew it in, it didn't land. It was about... Um, Oh, about a metre off the thing and I ran towards it and I saw all the screws running towards me and the squad team come down the dog bite and I just got on and she hand I sat on the side of the chopper and just went like that with a machine gun they all threw themselves on the ground mm. but as I scrambled in I heard foot, foot, foot we'd been hit three times um, they nearly brought us down it missed by about half a centimetre it missed uh, this coaxial cord that goes through uh, if it had to hit that would have brought us down so we were lucky. We were very lucky, and uh, it was a slow uh, chopper. Um, he apologised, but he was deliberately going slow, and he was flying at the wrong height, trying to attract attention. And uh, he admitted that later. Uh, we landed. Um, she forgot the car. We had a car. She forgot that. But, but you know, she'd done everything else. And uh, I had to commandeer a car, pull the car up. We went to uh, where I live, Milsons Point, that suburb. I did that deliberately, let the guy off, and uh, I, I did that deliberately. Uh, I wanted him to think I'd gone home. A lot, a lot of escapees go home, mm. so, and uh, I thought if they think we're in that area, they'll block that off. It gives us a chance to get out. That's mm. what happened. We got, we got in the train and got away. 
that's the worst. But it's a horrible feeling, John. You've got to admit. Oh, look, look, look um, it, it was the biggest mistake of my life, and it ruined her life, and uh, it just about ruined my life. Uh, the people around me, my son uh, in China, knew about it. Glory. But that, but that was know. like what, how many years ago was that? Now that happened in '99. Yeah. And I'm still on parole. Yeah, I was going to say you're still paying the price for it now. Yeah, still, still on parole. How old parole. are you now, John? Yeah, I'm 80, and, uh, and you're still on parole. They still won't let me go to Canberra, you know, to play in chess. You're an avid chess player. You like to travel, yeah. and, they and you just, doing, you're yeah. so limited. Yeah. And but, what, what's their reason for that? You know, I said I write books, and I've got a chance to speak at universities and interstate and stuff like that, and to sell books. And it, what, what it is, you're virtually uh, interfering with um, my career, you know. They said, no, you're a pensioner and you're a prisoner. And mm. that's it. You forget you are still a prisoner. I just want to touch on something now, because I know something that happened to you in prison that was life-changing, and that was your time at the VOTP. It was a course run at Long Bay Prison that really, and, and we've spoke about it at length before, that really changed your mind. Called the uh, VOTP, it's Violent Offenders Therapeutic Program, and it, it's the dual in, in, in the crowd of the uh, Creek Services uh, programs. They don't have many programs, and they're cutting down on which is a shame. But this one is good. I worked with psychologists mm. for a couple of years. Um, I still go and see them, still go to their programs. Uh, they bring out some of these people uh, with ankle cuffs, uh, uh, monitors, and they are allowed to go to the programs in town mm-hmm. they, they work out they find out what your problem is mm-hmm. and my, mine was uh, was gambling naturally but it was also um, I'm a risk taker mm-hmm. a, as you are and, and you know risk takers need to learn certain things they, they need to learn the consequences and they got it across to me because when I robbed banks I always thought like you know I'm, I'm robbing an institution uh, they rip everybody off we all hate banks they should be building bloody statue to guys like me. But I realised later, working with these psychologists, that it doesn't exist. The bank doesn't exist, really. It's it's the people it's inside right, that are running it. Nine out of ten people in those, that bank may recover. But that one in ten will probably suffer trauma. And it could suffer. You could, you could ruin that person's life, plus their family and everything else. So. For mine, I, I didn't realise until, you know, I started getting trauma counselling, the effects yeah. that trauma has on people. And even in my own trauma yeah. counselling, was brought up the effects that my actions had done to you know people in banks. So yep. that's when I really established a lot of empathy and compassion for those people. Absolutely. You, you and I have gone the same course and we, we've learned the same way. And, and I'm, I'm really thankful to those psychologists. And, and mm. You really like, give that program yeah. a praise. You, you speak so highly about it. And you, you, you even today, you're still engaged in like an outreach program of that. Uh, well, uh, they still hold. Um, the, the, the trouble is, COVID brought it, stopped it all. Yeah, and uh, but now they're getting back to it. What do you still attend there for? You don't have to, do you? I don't have to, no. But I go there because it brings me back to reality, Russell. Um, I see guys that are coming from the jail. I hear their stories. Do you think you inspire those guys? I think to a degree. I think they see if John can do it, I can do it. I, I mean, when I realise how long I've done in jail, and yet I'm 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 fairly normal. I think I'm fairly normal, and so you can do it because what we do, we cut off when we're doing hard time, and and we really start to hate the system and everything. We cut off and we cut our emotions off. We have to to survive because yeah. otherwise we just go just, to pieces. Yeah, and it's very hard to switch back on. How do you make peace with the trauma that you've caused other people? 
It's very hard, and you know, I often when I've done a lot of radio programs, when books and that, and people rang up and said, you know, my sister was in a bank, uh, it was robbed, and they think it was by me, but it probably wasn't. But but the thing is, what are you, what are you going to do about it? And I answer honestly that I can't. You can't do anything about it. You have to live with it. You regret it. I regret it. But all you can do is try and help others. I try and help others. I try and give back, and I do give back. I, I am helping people oh, now. You're I'm, the mo- one of the most generous people I know. You know that, and so are you, Russell. And m- maybe it's because what we went through that we do give as much as we do. But the thing is, that that makes me feel good. I see I bring happiness to other people, but we can't make up for that trauma that we've done. We cannot – and I regret it, and I just say – I'm helpless. I say, look, I'm sorry. If I could meet that person, I would apologise. And they say, well, that's not good enough. And you know, there's no answer to it. We mm. we can't do any. We can't take back what we've done, but we can move along from here and do good things. And that, that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. and people know that I'm doing good things. And I feel I feel you know a lot of people now in society accept me. And they accept you, and they know where we're at, and that we're doing the right thing. And, and I think that they give us a second chance. You're speaking highly of John. Everyone I know that comes across this is what a beautiful, lovely guy, and you wouldn't have picked him to be a bank robber, or you wouldn't have picked him to have the past that he'd done because he's a really kind, beautiful, loving. He's got the time for people. People, man, people speak so highly of you. People that know you and people that have engaged with you. My ex partner, who's a barrister, said to me one day. She said, "You know, the biggest success, one of the biggest success stories." from prison and I said who's that and she said John Killick and I was a bit dumbfounded by what she, the statement she said and I said why'd you say that and she said because after everything he's been through being brutalised he is just one guy that's not bitter and twisted and angry and um, self-sabotaging he's a guy that accepted his fate he forgives people for what the harm they've done for him because he had forgiven himself and he's kind, he's loving and compassionate and, mate, that's that's the ultimate compliment, isn't it? It is and it makes me feel good from someone like her but it's, she's pretty much saw the same thing in you, I think and uh, that's why uh, you, you and her... Uh yeah, you were a team for quite a while there, and I look back at my wife Gloria, or ex-wife, but um, the mother of my son, um, Gloria, and I lived lived together. Um, we're not a married couple anymore, but she is my greatest friend and probably the great love of my life. Um, the mother of my son, uh, he's over in China doing really well teaching, and uh, it's through her. When I was gone, I, was, I spent thirty years in jail. Thirty years. Thirty years in jail. In total, yeah. You know, after hate division, I met her and we had a son, and. Uh, She's done so much for him that he, he's uh, been able to do... He's quite intelligent. He speaks five languages. He speaks Chinese. He's married to a Chinese girl over there. And uh, and it's because of her that John is success today, and I'm so proud of that. And uh, she's the unsung hero of my of my life. Not Lucy or not, not the ones that bust me out of jail, but Gloria, who used to come and visit me the hard slog and stuck with me over the years. And uh, I just can't say enough good things about her. I met you, John, oh, 2011, so 11 years ago at uh, Nowra Correctional Centre yep. in the South Coast. And, uh, mate, uh, I really appreciate you having on, uh, coming on, on, on the stick-up. But uh, you and I recently have collaborated on you writing my autobiography, The uh, the Voice of a Survivor, the Russell Manser story. Let's finish on that. Look, I'm really proud of this um, because it is a great story. It needed to be told. And so many people I spoke to that knew you uh, the professor who's your mentor, uh, Mary, they, they've all said that this story had to be told. And uh, we
we've managed to get it out. I think I've done a, a pretty I good job. I think you've done a great job. Yeah, yeah. and, so and p- people like it. They uh, up on Facebook. We get people commenting all the time over so like, And what a great launch we had. We had so many. We had the, the heavy crims. We had the ex cops there. Just so many different people. We had right. professors there. The whole works. This book is available at www.thevoiceofthesurvivor.com. You can order it online. Yep. Anyone looking to get it. Yeah. John Killick, thanks for being on the sticker. Well, thank you for having me here. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I do tend to rave on a bit, but uh, it's been really good talking to you, Russell. Thanks, mate.